if we make people uncomfortable, we're kind of okay with that for this subject matter. Um, the Russian Civil War is not a light topic. I love the 1984 Dune movie, um, but I realize that uh, if you haven't read the book, you have to be on a lot of mind-altering substances to understand that, <laughs> that movie. As long as the story is well-told, honest, uh, immersive, I, I can read a lot of things I disagree with. Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers that built nerd culture. I'm your host, Peter Pischke, and I'm super excited for today's episode. There's nothing quite as near and dear to a history stand's heart than imagining alternate history. You know what I'm talking about. The what-ifs, the might-have-beens, the scenarios that make you go, hmm? What if the Romanovs had escaped the Bolsheviks? What if Napoleon had decided to stay home instead of freezing his butt off in Russia? Just imagine what an interesting world there would be to explore if events had only gone down a different path. That's what our guest does here today. He's Justin Watson, an author, a history buff, and a former army officer. He wrote a book called The Romanov Rescue, which imagines a different outcome for the Russian royal family in the 20th century. He's also a fan of X-Men, Star Trek. Robert Highland and Babylon 5. Welcome, Justin, to the show. I'm excited to be here, Peter. I, uh, we actually tried a while back uh, to get a group of us nerdy veteran Bane authors onto Culturescape, but it was just such a, uh, a rodeo of conflicting schedules we weren't able to get it. So I'm really glad I was able to make it this time around. Excellent. Well, I love alternate history. I, I, I find so much, especially modern history, which is a lot what you've written about, very um, interesting, you know, something like the Romanovs, you know, everything that went down as badly as it did in the 20th century for Russia. And you, you just want to imagine like, please, was there any way things could have gone differently instead of, you know, over 100 million dead? Um, and so stories like yours are just completely up my alley. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I, I should be very clear. I'm actually here today representing... Uh, kind of a triad of authors. So uh, this is the the culprit right here. I do. I, I am uh, vain enough to have a copy of my own book on my desk. Uh, so this is the Romanov Rescue from Bain Books, and as you can see, there's three co-authors involved: myself, uh, Tom Kratman, who is also a veteran army officer, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Infantry type, retired, and Casey Azell, who just recently retired from the United States Air Force. She's a helicopter pilot. So this is a, a meeting of the minds, so to speak. We each had uh, certain subplots uh, and threads of this story. And as you can see, it's uh, it's not a light tome. You know, it's 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 uh, not quite a Brandon Sanderson doorstop, but got some heft to it. <laughs> um, so we really tried to look at um, going uh, deep and broad, which puts the, puts the word count up. So you have perspectives from the Romanovs themselves, uh, some from the Bolsheviks, uh, some from the Germans, because as, as you probably know, as a history buff, the Russian Civil War starts in the trailing edge of World War One, right? So we're, we're still in 1918 and the Great War is still raging at this point, uh, as well as down to uh, the soldiers guarding the Romanovs to the soldiers who are sent to rescue the Romanovs. And it's it was a lot of fun to write. Uh, and it was excellent working with my two co-authors who I wish could be here today. But again, scheduling just didn't quite work out for that. Well, we have had uh, Casey on before and, and mm -hmm. she's always great. Uh, she's a yeah. fun guest. Uh, I'm not familiar with Tom Kramen, but I do believe he's also a, an editor over there at Bain, if I have that correct. 
Uh, he's not an editor. Uh, he is an author that has been around since the early thousands. Uh, he came into, I think his first book for Bane was actually A State of Disobedience, which uh, posits uh, Texas secession from the Union after extreme provocation, not not just for uh, kicks. Uh, and uh, then he's most famous for his Carrera verse series, which starts with a desert called peace. Um, the joke about that one is uh, if you uh, if you put that on the grill, it will start dripping blood. You know, it's it's a pretty raw book, pretty, pretty intense war story. Th that one is. I think the Russian history is so interesting because we are not that removed, really, from all the consequences of what happened to the Romanovs and the uh, Russian Revolution. I mean, I was born in 89, so just as all the Soviet Union was falling apart, that's when I came <laughs> along. So I don't have memories of the Soviet Union, um, but uh, many people who are alive still do. Those events are still very raw, and I think even what we're seeing today with what's going on with Putin in the Ukraine, all those events continue to have a huge impact in affecting uh, the day-to-day -day of our world. So tell me, before we get into how you think things might have changed, what do you think history might have looked like if, for example, the Romanovs had lived or if somehow the white Russians were able to get to them in time and win the Civil War? What, what might have been there instead? Well, there's a really good question there. There are some... Um, so in doing the, the launch for this, I've talked to quite a few people with a deep interest in, in Russian history. And um, there's some thought that a, a continuation of the line of the Romanovs would have seen a continued weakening of the Russian state, and you would have seen the breakup, like that the communist revolution wasn't necessarily the only way that the Russian empire was going to fall. Um, if you look at uh, the, the last few monarchs of the Romanov dynasty, there's really no escaping the fact that they were they, they were not the most competent monarchs in Europe, right? And and they were inheritors to a much more difficult situation than most monarchs in Europe. There's a, a famous instance during the Russo-Japanese War, which is a, a precursor to World War One, that uh, Tsar Nicholas is playing tennis. He gets the news that the Japanese have sunk his fleet. Uh, over in the Pacific, and then continues playing tennis. Uh, one of those moments of the, the heights of ar aristocratic um, uninvolvement. Um, so on one hand, there's some speculation that a Russia that doesn't have the communist rise for power is not in a position to really challenge Nazi Germany. Um, and you have a much different land war in Europe during World War II. Lots of variables there. An equally competing, uh, equally valid competing theory, I think, is if you'd seen a continuation of the Romanovs or perhaps a, and this this seems very unlikely when you study the Russian Civil War, but not impossible, if you see an actual representative republic that isn't Bolshevik, um, if you see, maybe not Kerensky, I don't know if he was ever the man for the job, but something along the lines of what Kerensky intended uh, and that Russia having a more stable representative government, perhaps you could see a, you know, agricultural country that sustains itself until it really comes to its own, exploiting its own oil reserves, right, in the in the 30s and 40s and 50s. 
uh, and then it becomes an even more important world power than the Soviet Union was. Um, I know which way we're going uh, with our alternate history, but I don't want to spoil things, so I, I, okay. won't, uh, I won't say too much. Uh, but I, I will say there are so many variables involved. The only thing I am certain of is that anything would have been better than the rise to power of the Bolsheviks. Um, uh, in doing research for this novel, I've read a ton about Tsar Nicholas II, and it's my, my, my short version is he was a very good man who never should have been handed supreme executive authority. He was a loving father and husband. A decent individual. Everyone, every first-hand account I've read of him from anyone who met him is is flattering, even from Bolsheviks. Um, but he just never wanted to rule and was clearly unfit for it. But that being said, as as rough as life was under the czars, Russia stumbled into the only worse alternative. Alternative, but like you said, a hundred million dead in the last century. And what a lot of people don't know is that the Russian Civil War uh, killed. And killed in action and civilians killed rivals that of World War One itself, right? You you actually had two apocalyptic events on the European mainland from 1914 to 1922, not just one. Tsar Nicholas, there's a story right now in the news about this uh, tourist submarine that has gone trapped somewhere. And so no one knows if the people are alive or dead, uh, probably not alive. <laughs> we don't know. And one of the stories around it is the son of the one of the billionaires that's on the submarine. He, he was going to go help rescue, find where his dad is, trying to assist the rescue. But first he had to stop and go to a Blink-182 concert in San Francisco. <laughs> That's kind of, that kind of reminds me a little bit of Tsar Nicholas. It's like- All like, the small things, man. All yeah, the small things. It, 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 that's kind of one of the more interesting things, I think, when you <laughs> study things like even Rasputin, fascinating, fascinating character. Was like there, there's this great realization after Rasputin is killed off, and then all of a sudden, all the all the excuses that Tsar Nicholas's family had for just all the wrong ways Russia was going was no longer there. And from that point, it was it was just complete and utter mess. Maybe that's because it's Russia, and so maybe a nice guy leader in a different kind of society would be able to do it, but definitely not Russia. One thing I thought was really um, uh, cool is that uh, you think about with the Russian Revolution, there were many times where, as you were saying, it could have gone differently. Even among the Bolsheviks, you could have gone with people who are less hardliners like Trotsky, or even before Bolsheviks take power, you could look at the, the more, not Western European necessarily, but more typical democratic efforts with representative democracy. like Or the Mensheviks, you know, they yes. had what they call, like now, I'm not, advocating for uh, democratic socialism by any means. I want to be very clear about that. But they had they had uh, a party, the Mensheviks, who sounded much more like Bernie Sanders than they did like Lenin. Um, I, I didn't vote for Bernie Sanders, to be clear, but but that's that there there is that faction involved. You're, you're spot on uh, that it could have gone a bunch of different ways. I do have to uh, say that um, while Trotsky was not Lenin, I don't want to give let Trotsky too much off the hook because the man was involved with the Red Terror uh, and he was, you know, oversaw many of the excesses of the Bolsheviks during the Russian Civil War. You know, the Red Terror being targeting Russian farmers and others because they were cooperating, right? You're, you turn the populace against, hey, your farmers are hoarding all the food. You should really go, you know, 
take the food from them. And if they resist, well, that's reason to bayonet them to death and kill their kids, that sort of thing. I find all this stuff fascinating. Having talked, I already mentioned my friend Kathy, when you actually talk to people that live in uh, the Soviet Union, there's such a disconnect between here, uh, us in the West, especially the United States, and <laughs> world history, even recent world history. And the world that she inhabited and, and just the, all the difficult things that came. And, you know, she, her family was a bit more well-to-do. And so they had access, you know, to, to not just the normal uh, peasant bread line, but the slightly better. Uh, the shorter bread line. <laughs> yeah, the, the shorter bread line, but also <laughs> still quite long. Uh, and the, when you talk to someone that actually lived there, you know, especially if they've immigrated, what they think of how that society was and what a lot of American soci- Americans think society was is so different. Was that something that you had to tackle when, when thinking about this project? When you were thinking about, like, what are readers' expectations or their base knowledge of this? And were there any uh, themes about our connection to history that you would like to reflect uh, in your project? Absolutely. Um, thank you. It's a, it's a great setup question. I really appreciate that. Uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and dive in. One of my, my uh, so again, the way we divided this up is we each kind of had a set of characters that we were handling their through line and they were all woven into one story, one novel. My uh, primary characters I was, I was responsible for were two uh, Russian great war vets who are now the Tsar's guards in captivity in Ekaterinburg. Um, so I'm sorry, Tobolsk, not Ekaterinburg yet. Um, so re- completely relevant is trying to be honest as honest as I can be, obviously, uh, through historical research about how a, you know, a world, a Russian Great War veteran assigned to guard the Tsar would feel and react to the events around them. Um, it's clear to me, because I, I do have experience overseas, both in places like Europe, South Korea, as well as Iraq, Afghanistan, other places in the Middle East, we do tend to assume our cultural norms for everyone. Uh, and that's violently not true um, uh, of many cultures. Now, there are many similarities. I don't, it's, we're not trying to design an alien species here. But I will say it is, it is a very fine line to walk when, you're, when you get too far away from your own time to write characters that will be um, sympathetic uh, and perhaps even admirable to a modern audience while not just creating a fantasy. Uh, my our senior writing partner Tom says remember we're writing alt history not alt fantasy obviously this is fiction it's not a documentary but we're trying for the highest degree of authenticity possible which means th- there has to be a degree of honesty when we're, we're trying to inhabit these characters heads and take our readers along a r- for a ride inside these characters heads so you have to find someone you can um, if not fully sympathize with at least identify with uh, and intrigue the reader enough to go along on the ride with them, and uh, I I like to th- I th- I hope to think we did that. And certainly there are any number of admirable traits about the Russian people. But for instance, one thing one of the things that uh, we have to grapple with is most of the white Russian factions. And keep that's as a tangent. The white Russian army was a dozen, a dozen and a half different factions and sub factions. Another thing people don't realize is that's really probably the Bolsheviks' greatest asset is they really were, while they had internal squabbling, and obviously we all know how Trotsky ended up after the war, they maintained their unity pretty much throughout the Russian Civil War without issue. 
whereas all the factions opposing them were never really able to get organized and under one chain of command. Uh, so when you look at the white Russian factions, there's a lot of pretty ugly anti-Semitism there um, by anyone's standards. This is not uh, this is not oversensitivity. This is not uh, painting with a broad brush because of a few incidents. Uh, the, the white Russian army committed pogroms on a large scale um, with the thin justification that there were a lot of uh, Jewish individuals involved with communism, which there were, but they did not make a fine distinction uh, very frequently. Um, now, later on, as it would turn out, communists were just as harsh with Jews themselves, but it's it does make it difficult to pick a side when both sides will commit atrocity as a matter of course, right? It's like studying the Eastern Front in World War II later when you're looking at Nazis and communists and you're like, wow, the only trouble here is that one of them is going to win. Um, so in the case of the white Russians, I'd still argue they were a superior choice to the Bolsheviks, but there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and there's a lot to cope with if you're going to write about that period for a 21st century American audience, because we, we all write in English. Um, uh, and still be honest and intriguing and uh, I don't want to say palatable because um, I think we're more interested in uh, being entertaining and edifying. And if we make people uncomfortable, we're kind of okay with that for this subject matter. Um, the Russian Civil War is not a light topic. It is interesting when you in the United States you bring up the subject of culture. For a lot of people, there's almost like a, an ickiness to it. They feel like if you talk about cultural differences, or you acknowledge that there actually is a culture, uh, which we do a lot here on the show. For a lot of people, they they they, they just don't handle it. And, and you know, the, obviously, for every culture, you know, the goldfish doesn't know it's in the bowl of water. Uh, you don't really notice your own cultural specifics till you go to another country and you served in the Middle East in the army. So you have some experience with that. But cultural differences uh, do matter. I think what makes a really great alternative history story versus something that's less interesting is it, there, it's not as detailed. It doesn't pl play out the different um, plots. And I think a mistake I see a lot when uh, there was criticism of, of the game company Paradox. This is uh, four or five years ago. And the people are playing their history games and they would include all these alternate histories. So, the, you know, you would say, oh, what happens if, you know, the 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 German the Germans actually won in World War One? Well, people who were paying attention to the mainstream media, they were saying, oh, well, if you're you're for that, then obviously you're for these bad things. But I think what sets up a really good alternate history story is you're not just you're what you're trying to do is not just to LARP. You're not just kind of saying, I want these people to win. And of course, because I obviously am for uh, the Romanov family, which obviously you are not. Uh, that's uh, I'm not sure well, there are many, many uh, put, Russian monarchs left. Peter, but... I'm for the Romanov family. If the cho other choice is communism, I'm absolutely for the Romanovs. If the choice is communism. <laughs> No, and my, the thing I'm trying to get at is it's the detail. It's the detail. And it, trying to figure out altered history where it goes is not the same thing as saying you wish that's how it is or, or even that things, you know, might have gone necessarily better. Sometimes you're, you're just curious for the history. Say Napoleon, he doesn't go into Russia. Well, if Napoleon doesn't go to Russia, if the French Empire lasts, is that a better, is that a better thing or is it a negative thing? 
and there's a lot of debate. I think people who are really indulgent in history are people who are like, let's play this out, let's see what happens, versus kind of what people want to say about people who enjoy alternate history, which is like, you guys are just, you know, you're basically history LARPers. Yeah, and it, it's uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite uh, YouTube talking heads. He talks about uh, Dungeons and Dragons a lot, less so than culture or politics. But Matt Colville said that there's an assumption on the part of Americans that all good art should lead to democracy, um, and that that that's not necessarily valid, right? Um, you know, as long as the story is well told, honest, uh, immersive, I I can read a lot of things I disagree with and still enjoy them. Uh, likewise, I can have inhabit the heads of people I think are reprehensible and still try to write them well in a way that brings them to life, honestly and fairly, you know, because there are, um, obviously there are irredeemable people who the world is much better that they're dead. Uh, but even some of them, like they, their story can be very interesting, um, if horrifying at the same time. Uh, and it, you're absolutely right in that there is a, a tendency t to assume uh, um, what am I trying to say here? Assume that an author inhabiting a character must agree with that character to some degree, and it's just not true. Uh, the whole point of fiction, whether you're an actor inhabiting a serial killer or Adolf Hitler or um, you name it, it's the same with writing it, right? You know, like what, what, whatever creative portrayal you're attempting, it does not mean you're approving it, it means you're trying to portray it honestly, whether it's words on a page or or a, a, a portrayal on a screen or stage. So I, I don't feel any moral qualms about writing uh, a, a communist or even a Nazi as a fully fleshed out character in a book. It does not imply my approval of either the Nazi or the communist parties. Yep. And I know to some people, this sounds all really dumb. They're like, of course not. That's obviously that's not how it works. But it's really sad to say that, you know, when it, in the world of writing fiction, in writing in general. So if you're um, you're working in entertainment, you're in news, whatever your position in writing is, there really is a push at the moment that that says that being insensitive is being the same thing as bad. Like you were saying, if you write bad characters in your books, that means you actually want. You, you agree with the bad characters. That's that's who you are. You want bad things to happen to people, which is, of course, r ridiculous. I mean, I don't know how fiction survives it. I think I wonder how much of the bad culture shows that we see Star Trek, for example. I mean, the latest season of Picard season three is much better. But I wonder how much I've heard of this... that. I haven't had the heart to try it. Ooh, you, you will like it. I think you will like it, uh, especially if you saw especially if you saw the first season or the second season, because it's, it's like that really bad bitter taste but then in comes the sweetness um okay fair enough fair enough it, it's <laughs> it's it's the sensitivity reader mentality and people are saying well what's wrong with sensitivity readers you're just trying to you know you're just trying to be polite you're just trying to be kind to everyone the problem is mm. it, it puts binders on you and it makes it hard to really engage with material and so what you put out as a writer is less interesting it's less honest but that that's my feeling on the subject. How do you feel about writing these days? Do you do you feel like you're with Bain, so I'm sure they they allow you to think pretty freely. But do you think there it's hard to do a story like this to touch difficult subject matter? It can be. I will say on the subject of sensitivity readers, I, I agree with you. It's very difficult because of course 
I intend no malice with my writing. Uh, I'm trying to entertain people and maybe educate people to a, to a certain extent, but mostly to entertain people. Uh, that while we, for alt history, I think there's a higher bar for authenticity uh, and research and realism than there are in some other forms of fiction. In other forms of fiction, I think there's a bit much greater emphasis on internal consistency and immersion more so than real world authenticity. But when it comes to the topic of sensitivity readers, the way I put it is I will listen to anyone who has honest, critical feedback of my writing, uh, if I have time to do so, of course, um, who wants to tell me, hey, in my research where I read, I don't think that's very accurate. Or who, who even who wants to say, hey, I don't think you're portraying, um, we actually haven't gotten to this part yet, but there is a, you know, there's so many borderway breakout states from the Russian Empire in Asia and Central Asia, so on and so forth. If I, if somebody wants to say, hey, I don't think you uh, portrayed the tribal groups in Kazakhstan very well because of X, Y, and Z, I would listen to that criticism. Like, I'm not going to try to pretend I know it all. But the idea of submitting your work for approval to ensure that it is not offensive smacks of something really dark and people say oh you're overreacting it's just manners it's manners with a threat behind it um and fortunately i do publish for bane and so i can say that you know i do work for bane so i can say that out loud without fear that my publisher will drop me um because i'm criticizing the idea of sensitivity readers i don't know of another publisher that an author could say that on a podcast and be completely confident that they weren't going to face immediate professional repercussions for it. So God bless Bain and God bless Tony Weisskopf. But that being said, I do, I do respect the idea that you, as a even as a fiction writer, you should try to get it right. So again, I will listen to expertise. I consult with folks. Uh, with greater expertise than I have in various manners, whether it's language, culture, some part of the military I didn't serve in and never really worked with. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons I might consult a, an alpha reader or a beta reader and ask for feedback, whether it's as simple as craft questions, if it's an author with more experience than me, or um, my brother-in-law is Vietnamese and speaks Vietnamese and grew up in the culture, so I... Uh, when I, I wrote a short story set in Vietnam and I, I consulted, I was like, hey, would you please read this and let me know if any of this strikes you as false? I've obviously done a lot of research, but I'd like your opinion. So I don't object to the mechanics of it. I object to the tenor of it. That That's what I object to. Um, the idea that we as authors should try hard to get it right and be even handed in our depictions of cultures other than our own, all about it. The idea that we should have to run it through an approval process or face cancellation and maybe getting contracts pulled. Well, I, I don't know what language reading you have on your podcast, so I'll, I'll stop there. I, I completely understand. If you Sometimes I think people who feel like having sensitivity readers is okay are not familiar actually with how that process works. Um, and you can look up a few people. There's a few people that have published uh, manuscripts You know when they got if the when they got returned from the sensitivity readers, what were the kind of changes they were asking? And, and sensitivity readers are not interested as much in attention to detail and being accurate. They're more they're more worried about things like the social power dynamics. Or does are is this too much of an issue in the real world? And so we don't we don't want to reflect those horrible trends. So you can't have you know your villain be black, or you can't have 
the funny side character be a woman or, you know, th this person, they're the they're the wrong kind of gay or there's the wrong kind of Jewish people. Well, I'm and, in and, Russia in 1918 yeah. in this book, so my villain is definitely not black. I, I can tell you that. But neither are my heroes yet. Yeah. No, and I have no problem if, you know, people should be kind and realistic. But it's like you're putting binders on authors. It's not just that you're saying, well, you can't, you, you know, you can't play around with black characters. It's kind of putting like a big warning sign. Says you just have to stay away from all of it. <laughs> you have to send me the fluffiest, safest script that you could come up with and that we can, we can publish and we can advertise and we'll get in zero trouble with, for our marketing team. But the problem with all that is what you ultimately get the output of your creative endeavor, whether it's a TV show, movie, comic, book, is that it's utterly boring. It's completely sanitized. And it's like a smooth rock surface wall. And you're trying to climb the rock surface, but you, you can't grab onto anything. That's how it is for me. And beyond anything, like, like I'm, 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 a, I'm a Christian. I'm a very kind person. I do want to treat everyone fairly, everyone with kindness and respect. But sometimes a lot of that messiness is what makes stories engaging. And frankly, we live in a broken world. And to some extent, if you want to portray a realistic fictional universe, it does have to contain some of that brokenness. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the, the, way, the way I describe the, the entertainment by committee uh calculated to offend no one is it's oatmeal without the benefit of so much as a raisin in it um you know that, that it, it becomes so bland so quickly sure it's inoffensive but it loses interest and, and something that bothers me is um it can i see it even in entertainment i enjoy and because it is because it is such an absurd movement i now am i've become hyper aware of it my wife hates watching any movie made past I don't know, 2010 with me. Uh, so the, the latest, uh, Denis Villeneuve's uh, Dune uh, from 2021, part one. Did you, did you see the new Dune? Yes, I, I, I like I it, liked it for what it is. Yeah. I liked it. I want to be clear before I get into my specific criticism of it. I liked the movie overall. Um, but there's this scene where, uh, if you're not familiar, real quick, Dune is a feudal uh, aristocratic monarchy set in space for your listeners or viewers who may not know that. So the the heroic noble family, the Atreides, uh, the patriarch of it, Duke Leto Atreides, is talking to his son Paul, who is the heir apparent to a a, a, a fiefdom that encompasses a whole world. And Paul expresses his doubts as to his fitness to rule. And Leto says, "If you choose," not, he ends up saying, "I'm I'm summarizing." He ends up saying, if you choose not to rule, you'll still be everything I needed you to be, my son. And it's a beautiful sentiment, and it has absolutely no place in that universe. Um, it was, to me, it was a clear edit from the original book to make Leto more likable to 21st century modern Western audiences, because we in the 21st century do respect our children's autonomy as adults, want them to select their own way through life to some degree or another, or at least we'd like if they maintained our faith and kept our traditions but we don't necessarily push them to one profession or another um or one life path or another in that respect but that idea of oh whatever you do my son i'm proud of you while appropriate to us would have been utterly inappropriate to any aristocrat in the real feudal 
aristocratic system or in Dune's feudal aristocratic system. So I really don't like seeing decisions like that because you pre-chewed my food for me. You know, like you were so eager to make Leto likable to a 21st century American that you pulled some of the spice and flavor of that setting out of it. And I dislike decisions like that. Um, I think it, I think it, while Dune was Dune 2021 was a good movie, I still like it. It is a lesser movie for that homogenization with modern expectations. I like the new Dune movie. Uh, that said, I also like the 1980s Dune movie a lot too. Which, uh... yeah, I love the 1984 Dune movie. Um, but I realized that, uh, if you haven't read the book, you have to be on a lot of mind-altering substances to understand that that movie. <laughs> Sting is in it. That's probably his best movie appearance. Uh, I'm a big police yeah, fan, uh, so, so I... my my brother-in-law are both brother-in-law and I are both huge Frank Herbert fans, and uh, got me this little guy. Nice. My desk. We'll kill you. Does it bother you that Frank Herbert wasn't alive to really finish his series, and so they a few authors. Um, I'm, I want to say it's Sanderson that, that took it up, but I might be wrong. Um, Kevin J, it, it rhymes. It's, uh, Kevin J. Anderson and, uh, Frank's son, Brian Herbert. Th- thank you. You would know since you're the, the huge Dune fan. Uh, does it bother you that he wasn't around to finish it? Do you think those books, that story came out roughly the same place that he would have taken them? Oh man, that's a minefield. Um, so I, I'm not, I can't claim to be friends with Kevin J. Anderson, but I have met him quite a few times, uh, and I admire him greatly, uh, both as an author because he has done what most of us authors, whether we admit it or not, want to do, which is make enough money with his books to live in a house made of solid gold bricks in Colorado if he wanted to. Um, <laughs> but in reality, uh, I do like a lot of Kevin J. Anderson's books. Um, the the Dune prequels, interquels, and sequels that Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert do- have done, I like many of them. Um, I have to say they do feel very different from Frank Herbert's work. You know, Frank Herbert had such a unique voice in how he wrote, whereas, you know, the the, the books by Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert, that they inhabit the same universe, but they just don't come across the same way to me. Um, I think my favorites of the the Kevin J. Anderson, Brian Herbert Dune books are the House Atreides, House Harkonnen, House Carino trilogy, which is uh, set right before the first Dune novel, uh, the eponymous Dune. Um, I like those books. Those are pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I I can't say I love it as a whole, but you know, they're, they have served an audience. Those books do very, very well. Uh, and I'm... <laughs> I'm happy for Kevin J. Anderson, Brian Herbert. They've succeeded so much. Uh, fun story. Uh, I will always love their books for at least one reason. I happen to have been reading The Butlerian Jihad, which is a book by uh, Dune book by Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert. Uh, drink every time I say their names from now on. Uh, it was a book by Kevin J. and Brian. I happened to be reading that book when I sat down next to uh, the woman I would eventually marry, on a flight from Houston, Texas to Newark, New Jersey. And I have her phone number and her AOL instant messenger handle. I know that's not a thing anymore, but back then it was all the rage. Uh, I have her information on the inside flap of that book. Uh, and that's how, how we met and how we started dating. So if nothing else, I will always love the uh, Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert Dune books for that reason. 
that's a, a great story. Uh, it's nice to meet. It's nice to meet someone that you have a, a similar interest in, and you can even. It's like your whole life has now been molded by uh, the Dune series. <laughs> it is interesting to me. This is like this is like a tab because it was a taboo. It used to be a taboo for big authors if someone came in after you died to finish your work. Like after Jane Austen dies, she doesn't finish Sandition. They don't get Jane Austen's sister to come in and some some celebrity author to finish it. Um, they're like, oh, this is that that's done. Okay. Well, it can go horribly wrong. Yeah, and it, but in our modern age now, this is I think it's become like almost the standard at this point. Well, if they die, you know, we'll we'll, we'll just work around that. <laughs> well, I think that's the plan. Like George R. R. Martin is just gonna, you know, he's gonna wait until he passes the mortal coil and just leave it off to somebody who is interested in finishing Game of Thrones. Um, I will say that Brian, uh, Kevin and Brian's efforts on the Dune series are by far not the worst continuation of a deceased author's work I've ever read. Uh, I'm not going to drop names because I, I feel like dropping names at the phase I'm at in my career either comes at if it's uh, an author in the same place as I am, which is very early or someone who's not even in yet, then that's punching down and being mean. And if I'm punching up, then it just looks like sour grapes from a guy who isn't there yet. So Fair. I'm not going to criticize any other authors too heavily. <laughs> being an author gives you a, a different perspective. It's one thing, you know, this is how it is in news too. It's like one thing when you've never written in news and it's so easy to, to you know, to attack a writer. And we, but actually having worked in news, worked with editors, put together a story, it does change how you how you look at it because you wear like how how the how the cake comes together. And that that, yeah. that that should it actually should change your perspective and how you look at things if you're doing it right. If if it's not, there's probably something going wrong. Either you're not taking your work seriously enough or you've become hard hearted. Let let's back this up though to the alternate history part. So you you you've tackled the Romanovs. What are other big what-ifs in history you would love to cover? Well, for our career going forward, um, I will say that Romanov Rescue is the first book in at least a four-book series. So we are going to be in this universe for at least that long, um, at least three more books. Uh, I'm almost finished up with my bit of Volume 2, which is... The title's still a little bit, little bit up in the air. I jokingly call it Romanov Rescue 2, Kami Killing Boogaloo, but that's obviously not what it's Ooh, going to be titled. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, that's an unlikely one. Yeah, probably not going to go with that. Um, that would be, kind of, I, I that would be that, a funny title, though. I threw that out as an absurd anchor, so whatever we come up with next, they'll be relieved um, at the publisher. Uh, joking aside, uh, I'm almost done with my bit. Tom and Casey have finished there, so we'll just need to uh, take an editing pass and get that turned in. Uh, to Bane, and I don't know, don't have a publication date, but it shouldn't be too far out. Um, uh, hopefully by 2024, knock on wood. Um, so I'm finished. We're finishing up the second book, and then we'll have a third and fourth book. I we found that with the single point of departure of um, I, this, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, and at least partially successful rescue of the Romanov family, and the. Um, unification of the white Russian factions into a more cohesive, more effective army against the Bolsheviks. That opens up a ton of interesting permutations of reality. So if the series does well, I, I want to be very clear that these four books are going to be a self-contained series. You can read book one, read through book four, it will be done, and you will have had a 
good journey. We actually try to finish off each book and make it satisfying, um, you know, to where you can read that volume and feel like you got a full story and we didn't just string you along. Um, but I will say it is going to be one complete series, but if the series does well, um, if it continues to sell well, uh, and we're all still interested, we have plans to take the story through the 20s, the 30s, potentially into World War II and this universe's version of the Cold War, because there's, you know, you pointed out early, very early on in the podcast, modern history is affected greatly by the Russian Civil War um, and by World War I. Um, most of our modern situation, you can trace back to deals that were made, empires that fell or treaties that were signed in the days leading up to the end or after World War I, right? Uh, the, the, the Arab-Israeli situation is all about the Balfour Declaration and various various other um, conflicting agreements uh, between Arabs in the region and Israelis. Um, all of Europe's power blocks are formed by Versailles and then again by the end of World War II and the Bretton Woods Treaty. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. It's also a huge task try to do right because everything is so epic in scale and so interconnected that it's both endlessly fascinating and whenever you're ready to publish it you're always at least i'm always thinking to myself i know there's the one primary source out there i didn't find that someone's gonna read and be like oh actually that was impossible because of this and i'm gonna you know th there's always that fear but <laughs> i will say um i'm looking forward to all but uh i love history and I love history and there's endless possibilities based off this one permutation. Uh, the author of The Martian, I, I read, re I reread his book recently. Um, and he has, he has a great point in there about working with editor's notes and his style is so interesting because that was a, that was originally a self-published project. And so yeah, the Martian, yeah. it basically grew from, he was doing blog posts. So he had a blog post and then he would, people come in who were like, and some of them would be real experts, like people who are scientists in NASA. And he would get that feedback, and then he would incorporate, he rework it, and then he would post a new one. Go, and that's kind of how he built his book. And The Martian, of course, is a fantastic book. It's a fun movie. Uh, one of the great points from remember reading, he says, even after all that work, all that research, he said, to make the story work, we still had, I still had to take certain conceits. So one of the conceits, he says, and you've, if you've seen The Martian movie, this humongous like sandstorm and they you know it's supposed to be like it's the biggest ever and it's going hundreds of miles an hour and then he says i just couldn't get around because actually a sandstorm on mars he said you know it would be kind of like a light breeze and it really it really wouldn't do all that damage that really wouldn't be a problem at all but to be able to move the atmospheric pressure just isn't there to propel it yeah. the way there is and on our planet yeah yeah but to make the story work that he that was the conceit he had to take uh well, yeah did you feel like you had to take any conceits when writing this book? You're like, okay, I'll, 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 I'll take the knee on this one just so I can get the story to move along. Uh, <laughs> there's one big ask at the beginning of the book of our readers. And that is the idea that uh, the German high command um, looking at events in Russia and the rise of Bolshevism and the uh, apparent uh, nearing victory of Bolshevism in Russia uh, comes to regret their decision to send Lenin into Russia at the end of World War One and helps enable a Russian rescue attempt on the Romanovs. That is a big ask. Um, it's not impossible. Um, it's not. 
It's not anything that requires you to suspend the laws of physics or have anyone act completely and totally out of character, but it's a big ask. So we, we have that ask of the viewers, of the, of the readers, sorry, talking about movies. I was in a different brain space there for a second. Um, that is a big ask of our readers of, hey, you know, th this is one thing that went different. And we, we explain why we have an, uh, an event that, that sparks it. But I'd say that's the biggest ask we consciously have. Uh, I will say largely thanks to my friend Tom Kratman, who, again, retired infantry lieutenant colonel, very exacting personality. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of room for hand wavium. You know, uh, that's not really a thing. So to the best of our ability with the time we have allotted and the fact that uh, I only read in English, so I can't, I have to read translated primary sources. I can't read original Russian sources, but to the best of the ability with the time we have allotted for research, we have made this as, as authentic as we can while still telling a good story. We, we didn't, we, we paid close attention to time distance factors. So nobody gets across Russia in a couple days. You know, when in reality that takes, you know, a couple weeks by Trans-Siberian Railroad. You know, we 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 are pretty good about sticking close to that and still having an exciting story. So, yeah, like Andy Weir, we have our one big ask, uh, but it comes in the very beginning of the first book. I love a, a good story. I love a story that is well-focused. I think mm -hmm. a mistake that many people have made, and I don't know if it's like different people are getting hired or the scope of the projects is different because what, what a project has to do. Like you look at the new Pixar movie, Elemental. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have not, but I talked to two of your friends and they actually said they liked it a lot. But they, what one key point one of them told me, he, uh, he said, it's a good movie. It's just not a very good Pixar movie. This is a good movie for adults, but it doesn't do very well as, as something that's like a, a general family picture and so you have to wonder for these big companies when they do stories they can't necessarily really tailor them down or get very specific but i also think it's kind of detrimental too though to people who really like in-depth stories i'm a huge doctor who fan classic doctor who um douglas adams of course who would later go on to write hitchhikers the amount of detail and work that those people put in especially in the tom baker years it was it was to the borderline insane territory, but you don't see that as much of the newer show. And that's kind of something that's bothered me, especially in the last iteration where you would have these stories and they would approach history as everyone's your best friend. And that's that's relatively new to Doctor Who. That was there to some extent, but it was like when you would go to a different time in classic Tom Baker's stories, you would actually it was almost like you're in a different universe. You're you're in the beginning of Victorian London. People are not very nice. Many of them are rude. Hygiene and food standards <laughs> are different. As a reader, you're like, this is awesome because you really feel like you're in that world. You recognize the work that the author has put in and it's totally engaging. It's so immersive. You greatly enjoy it. One of the problems I have with, with New Doctor Who was you do the Jodie Whittaker story that she would do these, they call them historicals. The problem with a historical is it has to be historical, not just in like covering facts, but the tenor and, and, um, the tone of the time no 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 everyone sounds like a millennial or a zoomer from the 21st century i don't care if you're in ancient egypt or the starship uk in the 31st century no i'm with you yes <laughs> i mean even if you go to the to the great enlightenment thinkers the people inspired the founding fathers you know they would like the rights of men for everyone but catholics and jews 
And that was <laughs> back then. That was like that was a completely normal way of thinking. Today, we we obviously most of us, I hope, obviously recognize that's horrible. Like all humans have a specific God-given rights, not just the ones that agree with our faction of religion. But people were like that back then. And if you take me back to the to the 1770s, and you're gonna write a great historical, a time travel story, whatever. I do want to. I want to be there. I don't want to be now. But it seems like all the projects that I see that want to cover history. No, we only want to be now. It, it, it's it's history, but it's nice. And that for me personally, I'm just not into that. So I I will confess that I liked uh, Eccleston, Tennant, and Smith. I, I liked all their stories. Capaldi would have been a great doctor, but the writing just took a nosedive, in my opinion. And I didn't even bother with Jodie Whittaker, not because she's a woman, but because the Capaldi seasons had already lost my interest because the, the writing just took a nosedive. And modern Doctor... I, I like Tom Baker, Doctor Who, as well, too. I haven't seen as much of it because uh, I'm one of the... you know I came in in the modern era and then went back to look at classic Doctor Who. I actually recognize Tom Baker from the BBC uh, Narnia adaptations he was puddle glum in the silver chair which nice. is some marvelous cheese if you want to watch that i i adore those adaptations with the fao schwartz lion as aslan um great stuff but so i came into to who backwards i came in through the modern series into the classic series i appreciated the um the rule of cool fast-paced you know uh quippy highly emotional storytelling but it's not the problem is it only lasts for so long. Um, it is a gimmick. It's a gimmicky form of storytelling. I can still go back and enjoy some of it uh, to a great to a great extent. But you're right; it is it's overly sanitized. Um, it's 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 very much overly sanitized uh, in terms of how they portray things uh, much of the time. Not always. Uh, some of it's pretty hard hitting, um, or it's cartoonish. Uh, one or the other, right? They either go too far or not far enough, where it's either they will refuse to portray a common attitude of an earlier era because it's offensive now, rightfully so, as you said, like, you know, um, having, uh, you know, ethnic and religious lines codified by law and enforced, enforced by both police and social pressure is bad. I recognize that. Um, but they either refuse to portray it or they make everyone a caricature of, a human back then that everyone is a slobbering knuckle dragging racist and not just a product of their time. There's no, there's not a lot of room for nuance. I think in historical portrayal of anyone. And that is a problem, right? When you get into history, you know, anyone, any common person from a generation, three or four generations removed from your own is going to appear to have backward views that you don't agree with. Um, and you can either, you can either demonize them or you can alter them or you can accept that they were wrong about certain things and still had many admirable traits. You know, we have a fascination with Rome. Um, they had commonplace, commonly held views that are absolutely antithetical to anything we would think is moral or acceptable at all. Exactly. Um, yeah, like, I, I mean... The, the when you read about what the Roman legions actually did during warfare, it's not all that different to what uh, a Waffen SS or a Soviet guards army would do to hostile territory after they took it over. Not really, you know. When you when you actually read the details, there's a little place called Carthage 
you know, like when you read the details of what they did to it, it's not, it's not what we would do <laughs> at our worst. Wow, uh, really interesting one. The recent history thing. I was, uh, I was playing some Masao games. So I was playing uh, Samurai Warriors Spirit Sana, which is like 2017 title. And it's unique because unlike the rest of the hack and slash series, this is the one title where they did try to take the histor historical subject more seriously, which is really actually quite interesting. The Sengoku period is, is really fascinating. But one of the things I, I, you quickly, I quickly noticed when I was reading about the actual time period versus playing the game is the game kind of washes over like all the historical atrocities, like every single one of the characters in that story committed. <laughs> and, and the way they play it up, like, like in the game, there's this missing period of eight years from, you know, uh, from <laughs> 1590 to 98. And, and they're like, oh, that's kind of that's kind of weird. And then you look up, it's like, oh, that was the that was the uh, historical invasion of Japan into Korea. And it was like, oh, OK, now that it makes sense. I feel like you're doing people a disservice when you kind of with when you withhold that very critical information. I just don't think. It's very appetizing. I don't want more empty calories. This is like the superhero. We ha we talked about this last week with uh, David Weber, and he he was made the great point that he doesn't think that people are tired of pop culture, pop culture stories, clean superhero genre. They're just tired of the empty calories. I I'm tired of ha you know Cheetos is fun once in a while, but you don't want to have it for every meal, and that's kind of where I feel like our pop culture has gone and stuck at. I think you have a really great point. I think that both Marvel and Lucasfilm, uh, the two subdivisions of Disney that are, you know, the hugest profit centers for it, I imagine, they're 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 rushing product so quickly. Um, you know, you realize if Lucasfilm slowed down and made one Star Wars movie a year and one Disney Plus Star Wars series a year. That would still be more Star Wars content than any of us nerds had for 15 years uh, while we were growing up. It would still be immensely more. And they could slow down and give the script a second and third pass. You know, look it over and say, hey, is someone watching this going to ask the question? You know, because that's really like no script is perfect. No book is perfect. I'm sure people can find flaws in my writing that I missed uh, that, while I was writing it. But. The goal is they don't get pulled out of the story by something flagrantly obvious. The obvious question of, well, why didn't they just dot, dot, dot. You, you'll get forgiven a lot of that if your characters are magnetic enough, but you really, it's good practice not to allow it to stay in there if you can help it. And I feel like both Lucasfilm and Marvel have gotten to the habit of saying, eh, nobody cares. They just want to see the, the, the big CGI battle and some attractive people throwing blobs of computer-generated light at each other, and they'll be happy. And we won't. You know, the, we, we will not. Like, they'll make hundreds of millions of momentum, but eventually people stop coming back. And that is... And my frustration is, I am a greedy little capitalist, right? I, I, I have no objection to people making a profit. I'd be happy to keep forking over my money if they would just remember to entertain me. Um, I have no problem with them being wildly successful. I was a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe through 22 movies because they always had a floor of quality they didn't really go below, and their heights could be really high. Since Avengers Endgame, they've just 
blasted that floor out from underneath the quality and now we get projects that were quite clearly or okay i say quite clearly to me they appear as if they were quite clearly shot on the first draft you know that no one said hey does that joke gonna land does that make sense is that really what they would do does that make does, does that feel real to you and it's like oh it's a stupid superhero movie why do you care if it feels real it's even more important in speculative fiction for the character motivations yes. to make sense because that's what lets people suspend their disbelief. You know, you can have people throwing magic around or flying starfighters as long as they are inside the character. You know, like, and that doesn't always mean they have to be a Shakespearean or Scorsese level depth character, but they have to be, we have to have something to latch onto about them. And I feel like, like David said last week, I haven't seen that interview yet, but it doesn't shock me that he said that. And like you're saying, if it's just a bunch of cardboard cutouts, eventually we get bored of the spectacle. You know, like we've already proven that you can make anything happen on a movie screen. So what? Why do I care? Yes. And I think the spectacle part of it is no longer enough. I, maybe it never was, but the, the, just the money is not there. I don't know if it's the state economy, the inflation. People just do not want to spend the entertainment dollars that they have on flimsy entertainment. It feels like, though, that this is like a critical rule that everyone that actually is a writer understands writing. For I guess there's some people out there who are geniuses. And as soon as they put their their pen to paper, they, you know, they put out a great treatise and it's majestic and wonderful. But for most of us, this is why I tell people who, who feel like they're, they're like, oh, I, I can't get into news because, you know, whenever I try, my writing's not very good. But writing being a good writer is almost all about editing it's about lots and lots of revisions taking in <laughs> a lot of criticism and just reworking yeah. over and over again mm -hmm. it's absolutely true and especially on something as uh you know so i sit down to write a novel i'm alone in a room with my imagination and my keyboard and it doesn't matter if what i write can reasonably be achieved uh with a budget as long as it can be imagined and it makes sense in my story, so on and so forth, everything we've talked about, then it's fine. I, I can write it. For something like a TV series or movie that's going to be a team effort, you know, you would think they'd be more careful about what they write, you know, that, that it would make it, there be more caution. And not in the sense of making it bland and palatable, but in making it hang together and be immersive and not make people ask, why can a five-year-old girl outrun all these alleged badass bounty hunters in the Obi-Wan series? You know, that one doesn't get a pass. I'm sorry. It's so dumb that you yanked me out of the episode right there. I know it's Star Wars. I know it's a space fairy tale. I don't care. It's stupid storytelling. No one took a second pass at that. Or worse, if they took a second pass at that and said it's okay... Again, I don't know the language rating on your your yeah, show. Like, yeah, like, what are you even paying those guys for? If that's if yeah. that's your editor, it's like. And, and the frustrating thing is, as so many as one of the talented know, but well, I hope I'm talented. That's for that's for the people paying for the book to decide. Uh, but with so many talented nobodies out there who could write a bang up Star Wars story, and this is what we get, mm -hmm. and they paid Amen. a billion dollars for it, or however much they paid for it, a hundred million dollars. It's very frustrating to me when the good writing is the part you don't have to pay, you know, gazillions of dollars to get right. The effects, the props, the sets, all that's very expensive. But good writing is just a matter of time and effort. I mean, and pay your writers well. 
of course, but like it's not something that's a technical limitation. Um, yeah, I get I get really frustrated with that because I I'm a huge nerd and I grew up with comics and Star Wars and Star Trek and I wish them well. I want them to win. It's it's their battle to lose to get me to like their stuff and they keep losing it recently and it, it bothers me. It bothers me too. That's kind of one of the reasons why uh, I started this project uh, with Bane and Young Voices was I love these properties. You know, I've I've been a comics reader most of my life. Uh, my dad is was a huge Star Trek fan, is a huge Star Trek fan. Um, my grandpa, my grandparents, they have almost a biblical encyclopedic knowledge of Tolkien. So I, I this these are the worlds I come from. And you, if you understand any great fictional property, you you learn that there is this history to this. That there were many people that might have worked on, that there were things that went through to make this thing happen. And so these cultural properties are very rich and they're very deep and they're very special. And I, my problem isn't that people have criticism. That's fine. People can have criticism, opinion, whatever. But people just don't understand or are willing to recognize that there is this history to them. There's this texture to these projects. And that's kind of what makes it special. But it's hard to communicate that right now. We're not really in a good cultural moment where people want to hear that message. I don't know exactly how to get there, but that's what we're trying to do here on the show. Well, and whether like the idea that whether you liked Rings of Power or not indicates is is not a proof of, but is an indicator of probably what your politics are is kind of ludicrous that we've reached that point, right? Yes. You know, it's 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 a little strange that we're there. Um you know, and that like that I know I have friends uh, of a liberal leaning. Um, I have many liberal friends, but some I've talked to about things like Rings of Power and there is they feel pressured to like it. You know, that they feel like, oh, well, I can't criticize this because it is of my. Yep. It's on the it's on the my... team. It's on the tribe. This I'm trying to think. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the correct terminology they use. But yeah, th this is the good thing. We have to support the good thing. Yeah, and and it's like no, you've got you've got to recognize that was bad. Even if it had nothing to do with J.R.R. Tolkien, that was not a good TV show. Um, like it just wasn't. Same with the Wheel of Time series. This is just not good fantasy TV. D divorce your emotional connection to the books for a second and just look at it at its own on its own merits. It's not good storytelling. It's more empty calories. I uh, I think you see. I mean, it's not just. I mean, the because the left owns so many of the cultural institutions, well, uh, institutions and society in general. But we also see this sometimes on the right, um, where they'll put out projects and everyone's supposed to clap like a seal, say, oh, this is so amazing. Um, I, I see this even in, like, the, the independent comic scene. There's some of this going on. And, like, I'm very supportive of all creative efforts generally. I'm like, awesome, you do it. You will make money on it. You want to get more people interested in comics, books, whatever. I'll support you. But just... I don't like being controlled. I don't want to be forced to say I like something and I don't. It's so funny. I feel like so many people, the response from um, the culture kind of going this way, this more controlling, sensitive side, whatever term you want to use from it. And now that we're seeing a response, it's almost like a mirror image of it is, is, is desperately sad, but also kind of darkly funny to me. Yeah. You know, stare into the abyss too long. The abyss stares back into you. Take those who fight monsters often become them. I'm not saying liberals are monsters. I'm just saying that you tend to start mirroring. If you get into a boxing match, you start mirroring your your opponent uh, very frequently. Not always, but very frequently. 
And, and you're right. There are, you know, I'm not going to say that every movie The Daily Wire has has supported has turned out into cinematic gold, right? Um, so it, it is what it is. I, I have a theory that you end up with uh, that there tends to be a, you know, the left openly prides, prides itself on empathy, regardless of what your opinion on what they actually practice doesn't matter. I tend to think you end up with more people going into creative fields from uh, liberal parts of society because they do tend to value it more. I, and and as someone who loves the arts and loves fiction, it's something I tend to agree with them with agree with them about that the arts, the stage, the screen, novels are valuable to our culture and we should pay more attention to them. But I tend to think your most talented conservatives don't enter politics or entertainment as a rule. They tend to be running businesses or serving in the military or something like that. They tend to go for more cold-blooded, economically motivated stuff. I have a day job that's in uh, the electrical industry that is very cold-bloodedly economically motivated. I'm, I'm a right-winger. Um, but th that leads to an imbalance in the perspective, right? Part of it is... You know, part of it is an attempt to control. Uh, we, we talked about sensitivity readers earlier. Part of it is kind of a natural tendency, you know, that a certain personality type will tend towards a certain type of politics, will tend towards, will tend to populate the creative spheres. So you end up partially through a control process, but partially as a, as a natural process, you end up with more liberals writing shows, books, movies than you do conservatives. Mm-hmm. No, and that's fine. In a normal, healthy environment, that's fine. If, you know, I w I'm not saying if, you know, for example, if the universities were more fair and balanced towards people of different um, political persuasions, I'm not expecting to half and half. It might be 80-20, which would be an improvement yeah. for what it is now. But it, it that would it, be a big upshot, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think it's I don't think it's wrong that people who are progressive or liberal are, are more artistic or that fits whatever how their mindset is. I don't. I don't see a problem in that exactly. I think for the right, they are more oriented towards results, uh, results that can be measured. They don't necessarily see the value in projects that don't gain much, not just in monetary value, but don't seem to produce results. And, and you could say, well, of course, that's a good thing. They're not going to waste the time. But the problem is you can't actually get a lot of really successful creative projects if you don't have just a ton of of um, uh, I don't want to call them stinkers necessarily, but a lot of things that don't really do well. And then, you know, it's hard to predict sometimes even of a, of a swath of creative projects, which one is the one that's going to take off. And so if you have less, if you have less hands in the fire, you're going to come out with less results, but the right isn't really interested in this. This is, this isn't just art. This is like, this is true for journalism as well. Like, I don't want to invest, I don't want to invest in a, in a news company. I don't want to do this. Where would be the money at when you're like, well, <laughs> I I mean, it, I hate to break it to you, but and that conversation <laughs> goes, never goes very far for me. Yeah. Well, with the caveat that 87% of statistics are made up on the spot, the rule of thumb I've heard for novel writers is always 1 million words of fiction before you're any good at it. So that's a, that's a big that's a lot of time sitting by yourself writing stuff that may never see the light of day. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a big barrier for anyone, right? Um, and if you have, if your pr prospects are, oh, I have a, you know, a well-paying job 
and probably a family to deal with. Um, and at the end of my day, when I'm exhausted, I could either sit down with my wife after the kids have gone to bed and watch some Netflix, or I could pull up my computer and continue to look at my computer. And most of us look at a computer in one form or another for our day job. It takes a lot sometimes. And I love, I love writing. Uh, I've been, I've wanted to be an author since I was 12 years old. Um, and even for me, it takes a lot of discipline some days to open the computer, uh, knowing that I'll get published. You know, I'm, I have books that Bane wants out of me. Sorry, Tony, I am working on them, I promise. You know, there, there are books that, that Bane wants out of me. I am no longer dealing with the, will anyone ever read this uh, hill, thank God. Um, for those of you who still are, God bless you, you can get there, just keep pushing. Uh, but even for me, it's like, oh man, you know, like I got to pull out my computer again and keep writing when I've been writing emails and looking at reflected ceiling plans all day long. It's a high bar to entry. And for people with responsible jobs that are high pressure, it's a lot. Yeah, it's it's an awful lot to keep going with. Definitely. Well, we have 15 minutes here left, so let's do some alternate history stuff. I, I Let's pick what would be the most interesting change you think for alternate history. So I'm going to go with, we talked about Japan. I, I, I love Japanese culture and history. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to imagine. Mm. Okay. So what happens if Imperial Japan doesn't fall or, or they don't enter World War II? Okay. So imagine the U.S., the U.S. and the Japan, they don't get in their fight about um, resources for Japan specifically. It was about getting oil and the U.S. was uncomfortable with Japan trying to oil get it by steel. force. Yep. I, I wonder, like, what would have happened if they hadn't gone down? And then you have to play, I had to play this through minds. Okay, so we don't fight Japan. Japan doesn't enter World War II. Does that mean that the U.S., the Western powers, win the European war sooner? And they have to think, well, does, does, do we get, does China become um, the independent nation it is today? Maybe it did, but it would take longer because, you know, it, it obviously probably wouldn't go communist because the, there is no World War II for, uh, uh, I'm, I'm just drawing a total blank. I was going to say, uh, for the Kai-shek and co to, uh, to go fight and then have the country taken over while they're gone. Um, but on the other hand, if Imperial China, uh, sorry, if Imperial Japan never falls, do we get pop Japanese culture? W all these great video games, all these great mangas and manga and anime. Does that never come out because Imperial Japan would be a more, um, uh, I'm trying to find the right words, would be a serious, yeah, more serious, a more formal culture. And so that emphasis of Japan would keep its hold. And we would get less the fun stuff that we all enjoy. What what's what's some things that you? I mean, you can jump into this one if you want. But where are some historical? Uh... I want to talk about yours because yours is really okay. interesting. I'm just going to go with yours um, because the the posits a lot of interesting questions. There's a couple different angles. I'm going to take your does Japanese culture end up similar or the same to what we experience now if we'd never gone to war with them? They hadn't lost the majority of their military age males and been firebombed and received the only two atomic weapons ever dropped in anger. I think the first thing we would see is there wouldn't be such a strong pacifist undercurrent to so much of Japanese fiction, right? Like where, whether it's Miyamoto Mizaki or, um, you know, a lot of the animes out there that are, uh, you know, portraying, 
fascistic governments with often very complex morality, but underneath it all, there is an undercurrent of, I think, in most of the Japanese stuff I've consumed, there's an undercurrent of no, really, war is kind of futile, and, you know, trust, trusting in strongman governments gets you, well, nuked, um, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, so I think you would have more Japanese cultural artifacts would be more openly nationalistic. Not that they don't have those. They they definitely have some um, anime that are that are much more in the realm of uh, the Shinzo Abe school of thought of Japan's place in the world. That's the first thing I think is you would just see a shift in focus from from one perspective to another because nothing nothing solves a problem like victory, right? Um, even in Nazi Germany, his generals only tried to assassinate him once it became clear that they were losing the war, right? No one tried to assassinate Hitler from the, the German general staff because of the Holocaust. It was not a moral stand, right? So uh, Japanese, like, criticism of war and violence is a result of Japan having lost the war, in my opinion, uh, in, in their culture. So I don't think you would see as much of that. The question that interests me is, how would you avoid Japan and the United States going to war in 1941? Because that is an example of um, what I would uh, Donald Kagan, uh, in his History of the Peloponnesian War, posits that war is the natural state, right? That we, as, as modern Americans, because we've been largely insulated from war, even though we've had quite a few, but we haven't been affected by it as much here in the United States uh, compared to most periods in history and most places in history. So we tend to assume that peace is the, is the standard condition and that error or evil or something causes war. In reality, I tend to agree with Donald Kagan that war is the natural state because states have conflicts over mutually contradictory and irreconcilable interests. And that if you have peace, it's the result of a lot of effort on the part of a lot of people. Japan and the United States and the Pacific in the late 30s, that's pretty much the definition of mutually contradictory and irreconcilable vital interests, right? Japan wants to be the hegemon in the Pacific. We cannot let them because we need to be the hegemon in the Pacific, even though we don't think of ourselves in those terms. So I would be really interested in how you avoid a situation in which Japan goes through its self-strengthening period, modernizes, defeats Russia, and doesn't feel the need to do the same level of imperialistic expansion they did in our timeline. So I'm really curious as to what could spark that, um, because that is really like Japan is the primary example of an East Asian country saying, looking at the West and their advances militarily, industrially, so on and so forth, and saying, if we don't mirror that, we are going to become subject to the West. And up until the 30, up until the 40s, they had, they succeeded, right? They self-strengthened enough. They defeated the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War. They were rivaling us in the Pacific. But I don't see how it, I, I actually don't see how either country can back down from war eventually. Uh, what I find more realistic is 
the idea that America might not have entered the Atlantic theater at a certain point. Uh, if say Germany hadn't declared, declared war on the United States after Japan did potentially. Um, I'd, I, I can think of scenarios where that would happen, but I just can't think of a scenario where Japan and Amer and the United States don't go to war because of, not because, I mean, obviously Imperial Japan was executing a very vile and atrocity-filled campaign against Korea, China, and others in the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. But it's not even because of the evil of that campaign it's because our interests as countries were too far out of alignment i don't see how we would have avoided war I, to your point i think even if the japan had not get, gone into a big fight with the u.s in the 30s i think eventually they probably would have put themselves in a situation where they bought off more than they could chew because there was a bit, it was kind of, it was almost similar actually to what happened with Rome, where to keep the machine going, you would just have to, you'd have to um, chomp up more land, more people, get in more conflicts. And at some point, Japan would meet some force that was greater than them. It's maybe it wouldn't be the United States. Maybe it would have been something more concrete like the Soviet Union or one of the many countries that's connected to the Pacific. I don't know. I think the turnoff would be in the, in the, the, the 1910s and 20s, there was a lot of assassinations. Then there was a pro-democracy movement. So in my head, maybe some of the some of the generals and advisors to the emperor that were assassinated and killed, maybe one of them survives. And maybe maybe that's the turning point because he gives really good advice. And so they don't they don't take a specific piece of land which doesn't you know set off the dominoes that causes uh, <laughs> World War II. But I know, but that's the fun thing about alternative history. You're like what might have happened and it makes you think even our modern day right now it's like we our country our lives we could go down a certain path based on the choices we make and uh, which of those choices is best and which of those choices is unwise and i think alternate history is really interesting because it clicks into all of that i love a good alternate history story um i want let's end it here justin thank you so much for coming on the show congratulations on your book and your forthcoming book on this series um, where can people find you if they want to read the book, if they want to follow you on social media? So I'm active on Facebook as Justin Watson. I look like this. If, if you see that profile, it should be fairly easy. Um, uh, you can check out my website. It's just justinwatsonbooks.com. Uh, and Peter, I'll send you a link, uh, if you have show notes for that as well. And I'm on the Bain website. Uh, Romanov Rescue is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold. Awesome. And if you go to my website, it's right there on the page. You can click on it. It'll take you right to Amazon. Excellent. I'm, I'm going to check out this book. You know, I, I try to get to the books usually before I interview people, but sometimes it doesn't always happen. That was this case. Of course. But I'll check it out. I, it sounds really interesting to me, so I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, friends and good audience, we are going to end it here. Thank you to everyone that took the time to watch or listen to Culturescape today. This podcast slash YouTube show is hosted by Bain Books Publishing and Young Voices, a journalism organization. Um, once again, thank you to my amazing editor, Chris Holowicki, who makes me look so much smarter uh, and more suave than I really am. And of course, to all of you. So until next time, my friends, keep geeking out. Keep geeking out.